Hi everybody and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. It's Toby Miller here. I'm in the Bowler, which is one of my locals uh, here in Clerkenwell in London, with a very good friend of mine, a person who is described on the web as an organisational sociologist, but he's normally known in bars as Jerry Hammer. (laughs) So, welcome organisational sociologist. (laughs) How the fuck are you? I'm good, I'm good. Uh, in the middle of the Christmas season, as you can hear. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, we've got... I thought I'd located a great pub for us to record in that was always very quiet. But it turns out that there's a soul night, uh, which means lots and lots of white people making unfortunate moves on the dance floor <laughs> to black people's music. There were supposed to be 200 revelers. So far, the staff have counted around about 10. So I'm hoping that Professor Hanlon and I can get through our incredibly exciting, you know, white men in the corner, organizational sociology talk, before the 190 other white people descend on the dance floor. We'll see how successful that is. It will be a spectacle. It will be a spectacle. We'll make our very own spectacle here in the corner. So Jerry, when we were discussing, uh, having this conversation, you were mentioning to me a new book that you're working on. Yep. Yeah, and and thinking that might be a good place for us to start. Yeah, it's um, so as you know, I'm stuck in a business school, uh, teaching uh, and researching um, on management, and uh, it sort of struck me. I started to write a book which I thought was going to be about uh, contemporary times. But instead, it's turned into a kind of history of management. A history of management. Yeah. A kind of origins of management knowledge. Um, starting with kind of people like, uh, obviously, start out with Marx around cooperation and how that's forced under capitalism. But then linking it into people like Foucault around uh, governance, biopolitics. Um, and also into people like uh, Sylvia Federici's work on primitive accumulation and back to the Enlightenment maybe more uh, more properly with Descartes and kind of Hobbes. And I sort of, the book has ended up as this thing, whether it works or not is another thing, um, where I look at the two uh, original schools of management, if you like, Elton Mayo, Human Relations, and obviously Frederick Taylor and Scientific Scientific Management. management. So it's either make sure the bastards are smiling while you screw them, or don't give a shit whether they're smiling as you screw them. As you screw them. And uh, and of course that Federici makes this interesting connection back to Descartes. She's doing it around colonization, but she makes this interesting sort of uh, move back to Hobbes and Descartes, basically saying, Descartes saying, you've got to get at the conscience of the person, um, and some people have a conscience and maybe others don't, and uh, and Hobbes saying, no, bugger all of that, what you need is a strong state to control things. Um, and it seems to me that in some respects, Taylor and Mayo um, represent elements of that kind of enlightenment talk. They both, it's not as clear cut as that, obviously, because Taylor, although he's interested in screwing the worker in terms of control, is also interested in creating perfect work. So his idea of economic uh, incentive 
is and the work pace is to keep people disciplined and sober and all of those things. So it, it works it worked for the Soviet Union as much as it did for Henry Ford. Uh, the Stakhanovite figure yeah. Yeah. is in some sense not that different from Fordism. No. Um, and it's interesting, actually, it's interesting in the Soviet Union because Lenin starts out in around 1910 or whatever saying Taylorism is uh, if you like the worst form of management under capitalism. But then he buys back in, he buys into it in the kind of uh, five-year plans. And he also buys back management in, in the recognition that in one sense, large industrial complexes and tailorite production lines had actually expropriated knowledge from the workers and that you needed that managerial class. But Jerry, do you know the kind of accent Lenin had in English? No. My friend Bill Grantham was telling me, you know, Lenin used to go to a pub not far from here where I would have gone with you tonight had it been open, Lenin and Stalin pub, which is now a yuppie pub. But my friend Bill Grantham was telling me that he had a, uh, an Irish teacher of English who was a professor of English, and he had a, in English a completely kind of ruling class Dublin accent. <laughs> Good for Vladimir. Well, <laughs> the big man yeah, yeah. was doing doing one for the side against the empire. Yeah, absolutely. Well, my mother, who was from the country, uh, always had this kind of I don't know strange notion that proper Dublin, uh, posh Dublin accent was the you know was the perfect English accent. Something. Maybe Lennon took a leaf from her book. Maybe. In any event, I think that's very interesting if you think of the consciousness side to things, obviously being Descartes or Cartesian, and the simple expropriation being the Taylorist one. Although, of course, as you say, that involves a discipline that in some areas might be, in inverted commas, helpful to the worker by making them strong, efficient, competent, even knowledgeable, and certainly helpful. Yeah, and thereby lending itself potentially to uh, a sense of autonomy and difference. Who knows, right? Well, it, it, this is the Taylorite work. Process. Yeah, yeah. I mean, ironically. Yeah. Well, ironically, I mean, I was reading. Um, you know, you end up when you read uh, counterplanning plans and so on from trade unionists and one thing and another in the kind of uh, 30s, 40s, 50s. You know. The knowledge that the workers kind of glean um, from the production process and their ability simply to bring it all to a halt. Uh, in one respect, I got I got to work on this connection. I'm struck by the connection that CLR James kind of made, where the plantations are run by slaves. They have the technical knowledge. They have the know-how. Um, Obviously, Taylor is about breaking that knowledge, but then it reconstitutes itself, and you see this in the sit-down strikes in the 1930s, where just simply through controlling the technical process, workers can bring General Motors to the kind of standstill in relatively few kind of key noble points. So, and out of that, I mean, one of the arguments of the book is that out of that transition in capitalism comes obviously the industrial working class in a way that the craft worker never represents. The craft worker is a kind of hierarchical figure in many respects with lots of benefits and lots of collegiality and lots of stuff around that but is also a kind of politically limited 
figure in a way that I think the industrial working class, the mass worker isn't. It's not to say that the mass worker is perfect, but you get a broader inclusive society out of the mass industrial worker than you do out of the craft worker. So in one sense, um, that shift into mass production, um, which of course is happening simultaneously in the sense of you have both a craft economy going on, but then you also have particularly immigrants and women in particular uh, in the factories. Well, this is why the United States is so important in the story. I mean, in terms of both Mayo and Taylor, isn't it? Mm. And the transition from the British dominance of world capitalism to the United States dominance of world capitalism. Yeah. These economies of scale, the simple massiveness of the enterprise, and the way in which the working class could be disaggregated through race, gender, and above all, language in the United States, yeah. and then reassembled yeah. under the sign of mass production, yeah. was obviously crucial. Well, that's it. That's the, I mean, the figures for a place like New York are just astounding. When, um, in the kind of 1870s, I think it's, I, I forget the exact figures, but 10% of Londoners, living, people living in London, are from outside the British Isles, whereas the figure for New York is something like 80%. Yeah. Um, it's just quite astounding that you get that rate of growth the melting pot, as they call it, but equally your ability to divide rather than melt. Well, uh, this is one of the interesting points for the Irish too, isn't it? Who, unlike most of the immigrants at that time, speak English, which is the dominant language, but are thoroughly divided over those who are American and those who are Irish, who might as well be Russian or Jewish or yeah. whatever. Yeah, and, and the rapidity with which capital could form and reform the ethnic groups in the factories. Yeah. Just simply, you know, if the Irish organise, you get in the Italians, if the Italians organise, you get in the Irish, you know, you keep chopping and changing like that in a way that sort of keeps, in some respects, keeps labour keep labor weak, but equally, it's never quite successful, it's never quite as successful as they hope. So, you know, if you take, um, the uh, Colorado fuel, you know, the Ludlow. Yeah. Despite all the um, all the kind of factors against workers kind of forming a kind of united front and a union and so on, um, and the company's deliberate attempts to kind of you know mess with that, both in terms of quite brutal tactics but also in terms of creating the first sociology department and all of that kind of thing to ameliorate the, if you like, uh, the workers or the complaints of the workers. Um, they still manage to form the kind of backbone of the miners' union, which in many respects goes on then to become a driving force and kind of, uh, at least up on the, up on just after the Second World War, America's kind of pushed towards the left. So in many respects, in spite of all those differences, their experience in the kind of mine or in the factory or whatever yeah. overrides that. And capital does what capital always does. It uses both sort of Taylorite 
policies and male policies at the same time. Maybe for those listeners who are not as familiar with the distinction between human relations and scientific management, you could just run through that very, very quickly. So scientific management is essentially de-skilling. This is the Taylorism. That's Taylorism. And it's essentially time and motion studies to examine uh, the labor process, which management often doesn't understand. So you learn from watching the workers how they produce, and then you break that down into 10, 20, 30 tasks. Um, it's not, it's always associated with Taylor, but actually Adam Smith describes it in the first chapter of The Wealth of Nations. The pin making. The pin factory. Um, so it's the basis of, and in many ways it's the basis of capitalism, and Taylor is associated with it most explicitly in the States, and then Henry Ford sort of mechanizes it with the assembly line. Uh, Mayo is much more, a much more evil character in my view. Um, he wants to get into people's soul. Uh, and uh, to quote Krakauer, uh, he kind of wants to confiscate your soul. Um, and what he does is, he believes, he believes workers are irrational, he says that very explicitly. Um, that workers are kind of, if you don't, you should listen to them, you don't necessarily act. You should listen to them. Uh, the grievances you don't believe very often. Actually, very interesting to look at how plantation owners talk between overseers and slaves. Um, it's not, there's a sort of a continuum. Uh, you would listen to the slaves complain about the overseers, but you wouldn't necessarily uh, believe them because they were untrustworthy, just like the work. So there's this kind of strand in Mayo around worker irrationality. Um, and what he tries to do is to recreate society. He's worried about society and capitalism's collapse. Yeah. Oh, sorry, the, the collapse of socialization processes. So he wants to use the corporate firm to socialize workers into society. Essentially a kind of fascist. Um, he doesn't believe that the state should do it because the state is open to being captured uh, by the left because there are more workers than bosses. So that's essentially, so therefore, you know, you listen to workers, you give them office parties, you're nice to them, you try and include them, but you give them no power. And he's a sort of an elite theorist, like a Mosca or a Pareto. Right. Um, and that's, you know, both sides of management still have that. That sort of performance managing and uh, technically managing the work process, and anybody who's ever had an appraisal has sort of bumped into Elton Mayo, whether they're aware of it or not. Um, so, but a male for me is the more dangerous character because he wants you to believe it's in your interest. Whereas Taylor would like that, but it's also pretty clear. You know, if you put workers together, they won't work at the pace I want them to work. Right, so it's it's two versions of productivity, isn't it? And maximal extraction of surplus value. Yes. Uh, now, getting back to your genealogy, which I think is very compelling in a sense how the Enlightenment and its various modern forms, the military, imperialism, slavery, colonialism, embody these things. When do people start saying there's a thing called management and it needs to be theorized? as overtly as that. Um, well, I think this is why Taylor is the guy who uh, 
is invoked as the kind of de-skiller. And, and, you know, it's in Adam Smith, it's there beforehand. Industrialists in Britain were doing it kind of 200 years earlier. Um, in fact, uh, Jefferson was doing it on his plantations in Virginia. Um, but uh, he, he's the person who, if you like, put it together in, in papers, in what were scientific papers. So I suppose you, it starts with him, but equally running concurrently with him, maybe even, well, actually earlier than him, in the 1840s, 50s, and 60s in America, there's a big scientific literature around plantation management, which the two, in business schools, the two were never put together. But actually the plantation does all the things that Taylor is saying the factory should do. Right. Minimum amount of productivity per moment, as it were, from the slave. So, uh, Harvard Business School is well and truly going in the first quarter of the 20th century. Uh, very, well and truly, and with a very definite aim. That's where Elton Mayo is. Yeah. Um, with a very, he was at Wharton, and then he moved to Harvard Business School. Uh, with a very definite aim to kind of make scientific management, uh, you know, make, make turn it into science as opposed to scientific management Taylorism. And he's very much Harvard Business School is very much about that kind of. Um, you gotta, you gotta create a kind of managerial class that's professional, that has a kind of human relations, that's a science organization, studies, that's a science, for two reasons. One, it'll make capitalism more efficient, and two, it'll save the revolution. You know, uh, Joe Kennedy, Hitler's banker, Bobby and JFK's father, Teddy's father, and a card-carrying fascist, <laughs> ran a class for Harvard Business School students on Hollywood in the 20s. He edited a book about it, uh, and every session is led by a Jewish mogul, uh, one of the original studio heads, who come across on the train from Los Angeles to Cambridge, Massachusetts, and talk with great glee about how the wonderful achievement that Mr. Kennedy will eventually undertake is to get rid of the Jews from Hollywood and make sure it's nice, wasp, not even Catholic, yeah, yeah, yeah. Kennedy, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant men who will come out with their bright new shining qualifications from Harvard Business School and make the business truly rational. Well, that's what, and that's what they did. Uh, you know, in many respects, because it's, if you take a look at Rockefeller, Rockefeller pumps a lot of money into industrial relations uh, at Harvard, Wharton. Uh, Wharton is at the University of Pennsylvania. University of Pennsylvania, Stanford. You know, there's a bunch of them. Uh, is it Queen Mary or St. Mary, I think, in uh, Canada? So there's six or seven industrial relations schools. Uh, Wisconsin, Michigan, I think. No, Wisconsin. Oh, Wisconsin is a, a, a big place for this, also for rural sociology. When you talked about trying to make the loss of the workers better in their families, uh, really the home of rural sociology in the world is Madison, Wisconsin. And it's all about that culture. The, the big land grant, mostly public, and one or two cases mixed private public like Cornell, 
big labor relations school at Cornell, universities are very much about this project. And they're, you know, a classic is why they become the real origins of radio. Uh, real origins of radio are in Wisconsin, and they're about getting information on climate, especially weather, and also market share to farmers and farm workers quickly and efficiently, and also entertaining the wives yeah. so that they're not desolate. Well, that, that, that whole scientific project moves from Harvard to Carnegie Mellon, Oh, in Pittsburgh, which is the, at that time, it's the big steel home of the United States. Yeah. Um, and of course, an awful lot of industrial relations problems start out in Carnegie Steel, uh, or come to a head in Carnegie, Carnegie Steel Works. But um, people like uh, Simon March and so on pull together all that interdisciplinary um, science at Carnegie Mellon, partly as a kind of anti-Soviet move, yeah. and partly as a way of ameliorating the tensions within U.S. capitalism between workers and capitalists. How worried are they by the USSR? And they're very worried by it. Um, they're worried by they worried by it largely as, as a kind of uh, well, largely as an industrial growing industrial power, but also an iconic kind of the workers can um, take control. And although. It would be wrong to say that, you know, the industrial workers of the world and so on were very powerful in the US. There was a period between kind of, you know, 1910 and 1925 where they looked quite powerful. And the miners, for example, demanded nationalization of the mines. Um, railway workers demanded nationalization of the railways. You know, stuff that's, you know, in uh, Virginia, the miners are having pitched gun battles with the army, they have to send the army in to kind of get them back to work. Well, this is when the National Guard really comes into its own and becomes the entity that is there to control the male working force. Yes. So all of that holds together, if you like, it kind of, or epitomizes a fear. And in the first war, America moved the state and large capital, not all large capital, but a lot of large capital, moves to an idea that it's better to sit down with the workers to maintain some sort of peace. Um, and there's voices against it. Rockefeller is equivalent and then is against it. Uh, Gray, or Gary, I should say, the, uh, the big steel mogul, he's against it. Um, but it certainly is the beginnings of that. And then in the 20s, capital wins. But in the 30s, it's kind of forced back to the table. Um, and out of that comes something like a kind of new deal. Um, but management, it seems to me, having looked at its origins, is simply about expropriation. And it's, it's wrong, I think, to see it away from primitive accumulation. So you expropriate women's knowledge in the 1700s about the body, about contraception, about reproduction, um, because if Foucault is to be believed, the population becomes something you need to control. Um, craft workers are actually fundamentally part of that, because they're afraid of women in the workplace. Then you expropriate a century later, work 
workers' knowledge. Um, you expropriate the knowledge of kind of uh, the colonial peoples, and then senior Hoover and American presidents go out to enforce this kind of expropriating management knowledge that they've learned in the U.S. around migrants and immigrants, and uh, they then sort of proselytize and send that around the world. Well, you know, Hoover's an interesting case. He was an engineer in China. He was an engineer in Western Australia. Uh, he knew exactly how to do this stuff at the mine face, as it were. Yeah. Uh, so... What about this question of the slightly older colonial powers? In the 20s, the Belgians, the French, the Germans, the English, the Dutch. What's going on with them and the management, either in their colonies or at home? Well, I mean, the French, the French have a... I don't know about in the colonies so much, but the French and the British and the Germans in particular have kind of... Uh, so the Germans make peace with the workers' movement um, on the Bismarck. Essentially, they kind of... They create a cartel economy. They move in many ways like the American economy, except around cartels as opposed to just one big conglomerate. Um, and they find a way that they try to pull the workers into that decision-making process. Um, and the workers kind of, if you like, get a kind of preamble before this. Um, the British are much more uh, sort of divided. They stay, they don't, they don't go quite for the big companies in the way that um, the Germans do. And they also don't quite <coughs> They always have the problem of the city of London, which is as interested or more interested in making money out of the colonies and making money out of finance as it is from pumping money back into British industry. So British industries um, already kind of in decline by the 20th century, uh, and its labour movement has got strong simply numerically, uh, but. Even by, but America's so exceptional that in 1850, so in 1860, Abraham Lincoln is saying, if you're an employee, you're a failure, right? If you're an employee out, out after your 20s, you're a failure. American autonomy is based on the idea of the kind of free citizen who's an independent craftsman or an independent farmer, but is independent in the first half of the kind of 19th century. By, by 1890, you know, well by, by 1900 they have US Steel, the first billion dollar corporation, and 70% 70 70 of the population are employees. So you have a big ideological problem about how you make that palatable. Um, but you also have quite a startling statistic that in 1850, America is the fifth or sixth biggest industrial producer in the world. By 1900, it's bigger than the other four or five put together. So it's just a phenomenal rate of growth that is fueled out of immigration as much it often gets told in the management story book as a a period of de-skilling and it is for craft workers but they're actually quite a small part of the story the real story is 
pulling people into new industries and factories on the rather uh, draconian and already de-skilled work processes. And America, in that sense, gives us modern management in a way that's not quite true for everywhere else. And it's also hugely brutal in the way it treats, in particular, immigrants, women and children. So the textile mills and so on, as the century moves on, in the 1870s, are kind of using more child labour rather than less, and they're recreating the labour process precisely to use child labour. So it's so Dickens and Ingalls are describing things that are still coming to pass. That, that American management and American capitalism is kind of ensuring comes to pass. So if you look at, say, the Lowell textile mills in Massachusetts, historians talk about them as having a benign and then a and sort of nasty period. And the nasty period is when all the immigrants come. And then you can do whatever you want because people don't have any choice. Local people, if you want, had, had choice. And local women in particular, if it got horrendously bad, they could go home to their families. But as those choices were closed down, you could make things more and more brutal. And in one respect, the only person, uh, the only person above the immigrant woman in particular who's come off the boat, uh, the only person below her is a slave. Um, so you can, you can kind of, and that's the untold story of American management. Um, that, and it hasn't changed. I don't think. I think. If you look at its origins, it's not that we can ameliorate management. Management's... No, it's scarred and it's uh, very coming into being. And I don't think there's any way of glossing that. No. So, okay, you mentioned the New Deal and en passant, that references obviously the Great Depression, when the narrative of capitalism is really stuck. Uh, at the same time as, regrettably, the horrors of Sovietism are yeah. becoming clear yeah. to anyone who's prepared to listen in terms of the show trials and so on. Um, that's when you get an, a strange blending of the overtly disciplinary as in Taylorism and the covertly disciplinary as in human relations or the mayors very powerfully. But then along comes the Second World War, which does transform a lot of this, doesn't it? And does the military become more overtly from that point on a model of management in the United It seems to me that it does. For the first time they've had a genuinely mass military externally, and that mass military becomes an affirmative action training ground and becomes a model that is reiterated endlessly of how to run. Well, I mean, the military, the military's importance actually starts even earlier than that, in that one, it's government arsenals that in many respects um, implement a lot of great what was called the contract system, which was we don't quite understand the production process so what we're going to do, Toby, is get you to kind of get a gang of workers and tell us how much you're going to make a hundred rifles for and how long it will take and all of those things. And then you go away and make 
um, in the factory. The government arsenals begin to break that down. They're one of the key kind of players in breaking it down because they're beginning to think um, that the gang bosses, if you like, have too much, that the workers have too much power. And gang bosses could be good or bad. That in itself is a kind of interesting question. Yeah. Um, but they begin to do that through making parts usable in different guns, um, to monitoring and examining the production process. So they begin to do this alongside tailors, government-sponsored arsenals. Uh, and, then, and then very interestingly, Mayo comes out of psychology, which of course got a huge boost out of the American army in the first war trying to understand morale, fatigue, those kind of things. Um, so Mayo, both with the British and the American Army, was very interested in you know, some of his early work is on fatigue and morale. And that, of course, comes out of the US Army in the kind of first war and afterwards. And then the US Army continues to fund that stuff. And then after Mayo comes the Carnegie uh, Mellon kind of school of management, administrative science, if you like, which again is very much driven by the army, both as a kind of, um, both as an organization to study, but also as a funder of their research. And if you think, Faber kind of wrote writing about discipline, wrote that the, basically the factory, if the factory could could model it, the factory, was, the factory owner was trying to model the factory on the military, where you would get workers to identify solely with the kind of factory in the way that he argued soldiers often identified with the military. Um, and therefore, you could kind of obliterate their personality. So, in one sense, and this is, the, this is an interesting part of management, I think, although we get told capitalism is about individualization, if you take management and the creation of discipline, which the owner wants, capitalist wants, it's the obliteration of your identity. It's not to individualize in any way, but to identify with the employer. Um, so that your interests and his interests or her interests are one and the same. Um, so in a strange way, they've, they've done a neat ideological move where capitalism gives us individuality, is what we're told, as opposed to, say, a Soviet system. But actually, in essence, the principle of management in the US or in the USSR strikes me as kind of the same. It's about obliterating the individual's identity and creating discipline so that even if you go down a choice, you know they'll make the right choice. So, you know, it's a sort of uh, Huxley's kind of world, in one sense. Um, and Mayo, more, more than Taylor, Mayo is kind of explicitly about that. That's what he's trying to do. Um, but it, it comes back, human resource management, um, you know, human capital, all of these things uh, are essentially about the same thing, seeing yourself as capital investing. So, um, if we think about the next big crisis in capitalism in the so-called global north or west or developed world, whatever we choose to call it, whatever the life term is, au courant, uh, that's the 70s, it's after the 30 years of 
And Jerry Ted me thinking, well, you could get rid of the other fuck. He's a dick, and I hate it. But we're all smiling. Yeah. What do we need to do as managers yeah. to allow you to bring out the best in yourselves and make yeah. your work experience better? Yeah. And this is the best. And I'm feeling violently ill. It's like one of those old-fashioned moments on the jet liner in the 70s. When the turbulence is so bad, the sick bags are all flying around the room to uh, the cockpit. Main body of the plane, but it's never enough to keep down what's coming out. That's human resource management's great contribution to kind of world progress. Um, and it is about, uh, I suppose, it's another level of sifting the population in that kind of and about also about in that Foucauldian sense and also about wanting you to think that the pathology is yours and not the systems yeah. now I'm using perhaps you're using management in this as a very floating signifier yeah. uh, such that whilst it may have originated in plantations slavery patriarchy empires it's the same in the virtualization of the supposedly post-industrial or new economy as it is on the production line. Yeah. But is it? Well, that's, that's a good question. I mean, I, I'm tempted by this idea that there's total subsumption. Um, that we're either managed or self-managing all the time. So, Google being a kind of great example, you know, it knows where you are, it knows um, your kind of regular, your habits, every time you search for something it sends back to you what it thinks, it, what it thinks you might like, rather than what is somehow the truth, whatever that might be. Um, it can sell on your data. When you walk down Oxford Street here in the primary shopping district in London, um, it can sell that onto Foursquare and Looped and so on so that they know what kind of adverts to sort of bombard you with. Um, that strikes me as a kind of, that you're managed in, diff in new and different ways, even, even when you're at play, in a way that didn't, you could see the beginnings of that in the sort of with human capital theory and to some extent with human resource management in that women, because they had a different experience, the men needed to be managed different and that different experience came both in and out of work. So you can see work becoming, uh, if you like, management getting elongated outside of the eight hours of the kind of factory floor. Um, now it's elongated to such an extent that I think a lot of the time, you know, people are never off work. Not, not everybody, but a slice of the population like me is fucking idiot enough to check his email, you know, even on Christmas Day, just in case there's something that might be there. Even though I know there won't be anything there, I'm still... Right, but today's New York Times has a lead story. It's on page A1 about how Foxconn, Taiwan-based company that has a million workers in mainland China, people's Republic of China, assembling 
technology for Japan, Taiwan itself, the United States, etc. He's giving workers nice chairs to sit in. Because of the controversy over all the suicides yeah. and industrial strife that have occurred at their plants, and the embarrassment that those involved in the global production chain, particularly at Apple, yeah. feel about this. Okay, it's on a continuum with the research excellence framework that the British government enacts and university administrators enact over our bodies. But which job would you rather? Oh, absolutely. I'd rather have the research assessment exercise. Thanks very much, our research framework, whatever it's called. Whatever, whatever it's current ludicrous yeah. iteration may be. But equally, I mean, this is the other interesting thing about it. That, and I think this is the bit of management that is that you're always dealing with that globe. So our job and our ability to stay connected and check our emails and, you know, email our uh, ludicrous papers to ludicrous journals um, is also pulled right back to Foxconn in the same way as, you know, um, plantation management starts uh, you know, starts in the colonies and then in the slave plantations of the US, but then feeds into and is a major factor in the industrialization of America. One of the big industries for the one of the big markets for the textile industry in the in north in the northern states was cheap slave clothing. You know, so I suppose what I'm trying to say is that the most you know, you gotta see I see the whole thing as connected. And Foxconn sweating workers in the way that it does. Um, in the most high-tech industry, supposedly, with yet very primitive management uh, you know, practices. Um, and practices that, if they could, the British government would subject us to. You know, but for a whole series of historical reasons. At the moment, that's not possible. But, you know, the future, who knows? Um, so I, and I also think that I don't believe that there's this sort of creative economy out there that's going to somehow, that's somehow disassociated from the kind of global economy more generally. Just because Giorgio Armani is designing something wherever he lives, uh, or the bunch of people who do that for him, all the creatives, uh, stuff still getting fucking made somewhere else in the developing world. On the pretty grim conditions, very often, I suspect, if Gamora is correct, the movie. Um, so, you know, the idea that somehow we can, because we're, I think this is an, an inherent racism, that, you know, we can be smarter and better trained and we can be creative and inventive in the way that the rest of the planet can't be, but somehow we can invent our way out of this. Um, that's a bullshit. In the same way as when the Spanish, when the conquistadores arrive in Mexico, they realize it's a sophisticated civilization, and then 50 years later, they kind of destroy it. Um, you know, you. Well, I think that creative economy is a bit of a. It's got a hint of kind of uh, colonialism about it, in my view. And it's one of the problems, I think, when you read some of the. 
about radical but more optimistic views of the world. Um, that we're all creating, you know, that there's this creativity going on all the time, everywhere. Um, I think that's quite a Western view of and particular locations of the West as to what's going on in these countries. Very, very, very lazy middle class and ruling class people who want to live from intellectual property, are you not doing it? Yeah. I mean, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think there's an awful lot of that. Um, you know, I, I was in the British Zoological Association, you know, the British Zoo, with my son, I don't know, maybe five months ago or something. And it was saying, I forget the figures, 80% of the medicines come from the tropics. And we've analysed like 4% of that. Uh, so obviously the message is, um, if you give us more money, we can analyse more of it and we can create better and better medicine. Okay, fair enough. However, I'm sure the indigenous population has examined more than 4% of the fucking drugs. So, there's all that, they have that knowledge. I suspect quite a lot of it. For all sorts of things we haven't thought about, we'll go and expropriate it, stick a Glaxo something or other sign on it, and then say it's ours, and it's intellectual property which we should then defend. Um, so, primitive accumulation and the advanced economy are never far apart in that kind of sense. Is there such a thing as secondary accumulation? Maybe you could explain to this what's the difference between primitive accumulation and secondary accumulation. Primitive accumulation, I suppose, I would put it down to sort of stealing. <laughs> it's violence. Yeah, it's a violence. Violence and Where you take something that's already shared and maybe in, a, in some sort of a commons or a public domain uh, and privatise it. Often through stealing, so saying that knowledge that is already in existence hasn't quite been in existence as you rendered it and therefore it's yours. Uh, or quite simply something like land grabs in uh, you know various parts of the world. Like when the train, you know, when the transcontinental train system was put together in America and all the companies were getting acres and acres of land either side of the uh, train track from the, you know, having taken it from the Native Americans. That's primitive accumulation. So it goes with a modern infrastructure back then, goes with chaff. Um, I suspect that the connections are still there. So theoretically, there's a thing called secondary accumulation, which is not violent and not theft which is the expropriation of profit from the work of free labor. But you seem to be saying that actually primitive accumulation or primary accumulation never ends. I, I don't think that primitive accumulation ever ends. And I don't think that secondary accumulation is non-violent. My, my argument about... Um, so the title of the book, provisionally, is Management, the History of Violence. Fantastic um, title. And, um, and I'm using violence in the way that Benjamin uses it, where he sort of says, obviously there's violence as in physical violence, but then there's um, violence as in uh, administration, bureaucracy, management, the curtailing of discretion, the curtailing of action, the uh, curtailing of ways of thinking. So it's a kind of, I'm using a combination of Benjamin and Montaigne. And uh, so I see management as violence. 
I see discipline in the Weber sense that the ideal worker is to be disciplined, therefore only make decisions that are allowed as a form of rights. Uh, it's a kind of restriction on human autonomy and human creativity. So I, I see secondary accumulation actually as a very violent process. And I feel in my own minor way, and it's a very minor way, having got some reviews back on a paper, I kind of can see just thinking like, wow, right. If I don't bend to your will and get this paper, then I may not, or may or may not do okay in the rest, and then I may or may not have a livelihood in three years' time, or five years' time, or whatever. That's a violence. Um, now, there's much worse violence goes on, so I don't think the world should feel too sorry for me, but um, I, think all, I think management under capitalism is certainly violence, and it's unfree in the sense that Although I disapprove of the man wholeheartedly, the kind of slavery apologist fits you. He used to sort of say that the northern uh, economies were basically unfree labour. You know, in an odd way, he had a point. You know, we weren't subject to the lash, so in that sense, it was a better world. But equally, your room for choice was fairly protected. And I don't think, even in a place like, well, even in a place like the US, you break a leg as an uninsured worker, you know, your whole world can collapse all of a sudden. Um, that's great, that level of insecurity just strikes me as an act of violence. Yeah, so that's... And how far along are you with the book? About 80,000 words, so it's kind of gone, but i got to edit it and tighten it up and all those things. It sounds to me as though you've got your argument well worked out, you have some wonderful examples, it's very comparative. It does sound as though it's articulated around the United States, and how could it not be? Well, I mean, in one sense, it is very much a US book, oddly. For an Irish man in London. <laughs> but also, it's just that, you know, the modern organization, the modern capitalist organization, yeah. is kind of given up, is a very, it's not completely an American phenomenon, but it's, America's imprint is all over it. So, I kind of thought if you wanted to sort of study that, and if you, I think in one sense that organizational form changed the world. Well, limited liability corporations the production line, and the emergence of the business school. Yeah, yeah. And most of the concepts you've talked about, human capital, human resource management, scientific management, human relations school amendments, they're from one country. Yeah, they, they, they're all kind of located there. Um, and, and America has its own sort of dynamic as well that's different to Europe and you got to, you know, and certainly different other parts of the planet, so you got to kind of work those in. Um, I think immigration, language, race, these are kind of fundamental in a way that are also fundamental in British capitalism, but you could kind of gloss over them in Britain in a way that I think, in fact, my concern about the book would be that I don't articulate the uniqueness of America, particularly around uh, its kind of race and gender uh, and immigrant politics. 
people. That would be my my slight concern. But then equally, having looked at a lot of the kind of social histories and um, a lot of the books that have looked at those issues, in a strange way, what they also don't do is examine management in quite a... So in one sense, I want to use that work to inform... I want to use management to inform on that, but, but I'm concerned that I'm going to, you know... I get it. I mean, part of my project has been trying to downplay American exceptionalism because I think it's very easy to overplay it. Especially when you see the effective exploitation of all kinds of tropes, forms of discipline, forms of life. But there are some unique factors that enable what it was and is. Uh, some of them are geographical, some of them are demographic, some of them are topographic, some of them are political economic, some of them are cultural. And this applies in any country, obviously. Uh, what matters is when you have a country that changes the rest of the world. Yeah. Not necessarily in its own image, but does change the rest of the world. And trying to come to grips with it is the great dilemma that everybody in the 20th century who thinks about these things, and actually still in the 21st. Uh, after all, what are the supposedly new emerging economies trying to do? They're trying to look at how the fuck the Americans did it. Yeah, yeah. And, and also America, I mean, America is exceptional, but equally, if you read like... Uh, stuff coming out of Germany in the 1920s and 1930s, they've got their own Elton males and their own kind of um, consumerism and, and those kind of things emerging. So I think what is, in one sense, what's exceptional about America is just the sheer impact of it. Yeah. Um, you have race works in a way that doesn't quite work in a place like Germany or Britain, but, but it's also just the sheer impact of American capital. And the, the speed at which it happens is really quite phenomenal. I mean, I know China has looked like a... But America moves incredibly quickly in 50 years, and I'm not sure the Chinese are going to move that way. That's how, that's how impressive, if you like, it, it is. Um, you know, you go from being number five in the world to bigger than the... Uh, the rest of them put together. Yeah. Uh, perhaps it's a lamentation for this, but I might sign off with some words that appear on a bridge in New Jersey. Trenton makes, the world takes. <laughs> Not so much. Well, Jerry Hanlon, thank you very much for this conversation, which has been wonderful. And I know that now there will be potential readers in over 50 countries for your new book, when it's finished, when you're happy with it, when you bring it out. It's been great chatting, and I hope that once that book does hit your virtual book stands out there, <laughs> virtual listeners, you'll come back to the pod and talk to us some more. Love to, love to. Thank you. Great.